Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new Securing Bridges podcast. You're about to join Alyssa Miller as she sits down with senior and executive security leaders to share stories of success and failure while working across business teams. It's time to build and secure the bridge to the business. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. All right, Securing Bridges faithful, did you miss us? Two whole weeks without us. I warned you it was coming. I didn't tell y'all. I told you there'd be a two-week break. We're back now. It's episode 25. We're, we're like a quarter of a century old or something. <laughs> I'm way older. You can rent a car now. I can. Securing Bridges can rent a car to drive across the bridge. Wait, there, there's something in there, but I can't come up with it. I'll have the it. tolls will be terrible, though. <laughs> So, welcome back. Here we are once again, and this week, if you didn't catch it on social media, we're crossing the streams. Don't cross the streams. We're going to cross the streams because our guest this week has his own streaming channel on YouTube and maybe a few other platforms too. We'll find out in a second. But So, we're going to dive into our lots of great topics. We got some, we got some really set up. Good topics coming up kind of from the, the recent headlines in the info security space, but we'll also get into some of the other things too. Um, but with no further ado, welcome to the show, our latest guest. It's Phil Swain. Hey, Phil, how are you? Hey, I'm doing really well today. Awesome. Well, some people maybe haven't seen Glass of OJ, your show yet, um, <laughs> or maybe they're not, maybe they haven't seen that. Maybe they're familiar with you. Maybe they're not, but Introduce yourself. Tell folks about Yeah. So I'm Oddjob. And uh, as Alyssa said, I run a YouTube channel called Glass of OJ. And if you're searching for it, you're going to want to put a zero in for the O because, of course, I did that. Um, because Oddjob, as you can see right here at my name, it's zeros for the, Z, uh, for the O's. So anyway, Glass of Zero J, OJ, orange juice. You'll see me drinking a glass of orange juice while I'm pontificating or just ruminating on infosec topics. Uh, I try to take some of the like sometimes news that's in the day or something that's recently happened to me and I go, yeah, people need to know about this. I need to share this experience and talk about it in a way that you can take away a lesson. You, it's your glass of OJ for the day. You know, you need, you need, you need your glass of OJ for the day. Um, so I don't release them every day. Uh, I haven't actually Actually, I think it did release two last week. Um, but yeah, so it was so it's really fun. I also run Circle CityCon, uh, so I've been uh, a part of that for ten years now. Uh, that's fantastic. Our tenth year is coming up, June twenty third through the twenty fifth, twenty twenty three. Tickets may be on sale for seventy five dollars right now, so go get them before uh, November seventh. Um, but yeah, so feel free and. Uh, yeah, and then I also work for uh, I'm I'm the head of cyber resiliency operations for a uh, a Fortune 500 out there in the financial sector. Awesome. So you know, some people have their zero days. We have our zero J. Oh, boo! Oh, okay. <laughs> I had to go there. Come on, I had to. I I couldn't resist. It popped into my head, and I just couldn't let it go. <laughs> I'm so ashamed of myself right now, but uh, yeah, it happens. So you mentioned, you know. There's a lot of, you mentioned how you like to talk about 
recent current events and whatever. And there, there's a lot out there right now, especially in the legal space. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, there's a few things of particular note and one that we promised our listeners we'd get into. So I don't see any reason to hesitate. Let, let's get into this thing. So was a week or two ago, I think two weeks ago now, yep. Joe Sullivan, former yep. CSO for uh, Uber, among others, <laughs> uh, was convicted of, yes. I believe, two different charges uh, stemming from the breach at Uber back in 2016. Correct. And some you know activities around covering that up. Mm-hmm. And it, it's been interesting to watch because, I mean, Social media predictably was all about it. And I've heard from people on both sides. I mean, Mm. I've heard from people who are like, good, he deserved it. He he screwed up royally. There's no place for this in cybersecurity. It hurts our credibility, blah. And then I'm hearing from the other side are people who are very concerned of the precedent that this sets of scapegoating CISOs and even some people who – you know, have more of a personal relationship with with him and, you know, I, I have concerns and feel like he's been treated unfairly. So we obviously only know what we see in the media, what's reported on. But I'm just, I'm kind of curious, first of all, just setting up those two sides, if you will. And there's always a spectrum. It's never really sides. But where do you fall on this? I mean, what, what was your kind of your thoughts as so went down reading through the facts of the case as you can find it on court listener which i'll admit they don't have absolutely everything in there uh they don't have all the depositions they don't have all the testimony and everything like that uh but judging based on the facts that i've been able to tell from news media from the actual complaint documents indictments and everything um that the doj brought up um that he at the best, he set himself up for failure and set himself up into this. He may not be, you know, a malicious person in this in this regard, uh, deserving of uh, any kind of punishment that may involve jail time. But he did do something that I believe, or at least on the face of it, looks like, yes, it was the things that they were claiming them were claiming they were, which was obstruction, obstructing the FTC investigation and misprision of a felony. Um, and so that's, those are, those are two things that they laid out a very good case for. Um, and I haven't seen really too much on the other side facts wise to say that they have their facts incorrect to, to say that maybe, maybe they had, maybe they have it wrong. Well, and that's, and this is the key thing for me, right? Like I, I read through the documents as well. And I felt like his defense was, well, I wasn't the only one involved in this. So therefore I'm not guilty. Right. That was kind of the feel I got from a lot of the the different filings and some of the testimony that was presented, which we can argue all day long. That may very well be true. Right. Like I, you know, there, there were board members who had things to say um, about how the, you know, I think general counsel was involved and, you know, said they were completely unaware of this and denied everything. And you can, we can talk about whether or not we find that credible, but at the end of the day, I didn't feel like to your point, there was a defense presented here to say, I didn't cover this up. I didn't Correct. block the FTC's investigation. So let's say for a minute that the board was involved here. What are your thoughts on how a CISO or CSO 
should react and should behave in that situation. Let's say he's being pressured to do these things, to cover this up by the board, by the executive leadership team, whomever. Yeah, I think I think it's in a very – it also needs to be very understood that – uh, the situation he was in was in 2014, late 2014, uh, Uber had a breach that then they had to report to the FTC. They did. And they came in to investigate. And in 2015, the spring, they brought Joseph Sullivan in to kind of bolster security up. And then November 2016, they end up having this breach, another one. And they're in the middle still of the, or towards the end of it, but he's been giving testimony to the FTC about the state of the situation, about what incidents are going on. And these are sworn statements. These are, these are legal. These are sworn statements. And there's also the understanding of the way he's representing and holding himself out as the person who knows and is giving them the information. Um, that starts to supersede anything the board, for instance, would be. Even if the board said, Joe, you are not odd job, Phil, you are not to tell anyone about this, even the government. At that point, if you are the officer that is sworn to the FTC or anybody, you can't lie. And a lie by omission, because I don't know everything that was asked, but I have to imagine the FTC would say, has there been another breach? And if he learns right after he gave that testimony that, yes, during that testimony, there was a breach, and doesn't amend that testimony, especially when they had a session the next month with the FTC again to go over things. He had all that time, even up until the time when the new CEO came in and said, this doesn't smell right, found out that something wasn't quite right, fired him the next year in November 2017 because he just couldn't trust him. There's that credibility again. He just couldn't trust him. And so even if the board level was at that uh, discussion, uh, with him and saying that you can't tell anybody that's the FTC. That's the government. You can't lie to them in that and not expect to have something come back on you. I mean, I feel like this is a whistleblower situation ultimately that he's set up for, right? Like, yeah. Okay. You're actually, if they're telling you, which I don't know if that, if that actually was claimed specifically, right? I did not see that in what I had read that he specifically claimed they told him to cover it up. But it was definitely implied. But my thing is, like, if they had told you that, they've, they've told you to commit a crime. So when you're sworn under oath and you have the opportunity, why wouldn't you? That's the ultimate out. I mean, yeah, yeah you, you, the, the, micro, the microphone you really want there is there to say, we had a breach. And not only that, they wanted me to cover it up. You know, that's the point at which you do that. You save those emails, you save all those things and you bring that because um, when you're, when you're a chief information security officer, your duty is not just to the board. Your duty is also to those customers, to those drivers, to those uh, users of your product and, and to the general public as well to make sure that they are, they're taken care of. And it, again, a very rare situation one would hopefully never find themselves in is where, you know, you, like you said, the situation where a board is telling you to do something illegal and you have the government there saying you will testify to the truth of this matter. You better testify to the truth of that matter. And it should be a duty, not only just under the law, but also personally as cybersecurity professionals to, to stand up and say something. Yeah. I mean, you know, we preach all the time ethics in cybersecurity. Do we practice it all the time? Maybe not, but we preach it. 
And it, you know, it bothers me that there would be people in cybersecurity saying, you know, he shouldn't be charged with crimes if crimes actually happened, right? And that, that's the thing I have a real problem with. And I, I, I think where, you know, and, and I, I look at him and I, I you know, look at the situation. I'm kind of wondering, like, what was your motivation? Was this personal? Like you were afraid to say that this happened on your watch, was it, you know, he was pressured into it and didn't want to air it even in that, you know, in a, in a sworn statement because that would, what, make him unmarketable to find a new job after they would predictably, you know, sever ties with him? I, I don't know, you know, but it, it begs some interesting questions. Like what would even motivate someone in a position like that to take that action as opposed to, hey, you know what? I'm stuck here. I'm under oath. I have to tell the truth. I'm going to tell the truth. Yeah, and I mean, and this is this is the thing also where you know, as a CISO, it's important, and just the cybersecurity professionals in general, it's important to bring things to your general counsel. General counsel was in the FTC with him the entire time while they were giving testimonies and everything. It was him and the and their general counsel as a part of any basic cyber incident response plan. Keeping general counsel's office, you know, at a minimum and the general counsel person themselves should be one of the key things to ensure privilege of those communications and privilege of an incident, especially of, you know, the, the incident, uh, the, the breach that happened in 2016. Um, GC should have known, been known, notified about that. I mean, any SERP that's worse than SALT should have had that as part of that. If that was in there and he didn't follow that, well, now he's not following the plan, the policy. And if he doesn't have it in there, that that's kind of, you know, you, you kind of shot yourself in the foot there because that's a key person you want who's able to say, yes, and I too said this is something that he then could at least tell FTC, I was advised by my by our general counsel, by our lawyers. And even then further, he should have probably also maybe consulted his own attorney. Like, you know, you, you get your own attorney in those situations to say, so I got the GC looking out for our business, but I also need to look out for myself, especially when the FTC is involved or someone else, you might want to get your own counsel to say, how do I make sure I don't end up on the wrong side of uh, some regulation law or duty to report here? And that's a really good point. Um, you know, and I think it's, it, if there's things to be learned from this, that's one of the big ones, right? If you're in any type of position where you're, you're going to be asked as a representative of your company at whatever layer to talk about that company under oath, trusting your company's general counsel as the only source of legal advice for yourself is a really bad idea <clears throat> because at the end of the day, as cynical as this may sound, the, that general counsel is kind of like your HR department. They are there to make sure the company doesn't get sued. The company doesn't get in trouble. So for the people out there claiming, oh my God, he was scapegoated. Even if he was, let, let's say for a minute that this was a thing where the, the company set him up to take the fall for bigger issues. Well, that would have been a good opportunity. That That's a good learning you know, opportunity here for everyone else in the industry who's worried about that precedent is get your own lawyer, find out, make sure that you have somebody who's looking out for you yes. in all aspects of you. So I, I think that's important. But what about this scapegoating thing? I want to dig into that a little bit too, because we have heard before there's been, 
you know, talk in the industry about CISOs being charged with crimes and fined personally and everything else for breaches that occur. Does this set a bad precedent? I mean, that that's what I'm hearing from a lot of people. They're worried that this, you know, it sounds like echoes of that same argument. Is that what's happening here? I think I think it gets into a situation, and I and I brought that up on my video about this a little bit, which is the amount of secrecy that they were able to show during discovery where he put himself as the pretty much the only person who knew everything that was going on with this incident. And he had the rest of, which is actually also part of a good SERP, which is you tell your people who are investigating, you do not tell anybody else about this unless they have a need to know. And I say, or blah, blah, blah. That's part of a good SERP con controlling the information. But the way he had done it and then his other actions essentially made himself the sole person who knew anything and was essentially making decisions. As a CISO, you are there to advise the business. The, the lawyer doesn't go out and just do a bunch of stuff. They go and advise, here are your liabilities. Here's the, here's the risk and benefit to making this decision. Here's the decision I would recommend. And the person who should make the decision, the CEO or general counsel or whoever's supposed to make the decision, they make the decision for the company. You don't go and make those levels of decisions for the company. Um, with, without those things. So scapegoating, first of all, don't put yourself in that situation where you're going to get scapegoated. Make sure that you are advising and your language is such to the business that you are advising them on what to do. You are not going and telling them. And especially if someone is asking you as the CISO, I need you to sign off on the risk for this. No, no, no. The business signs off that they recognize what the risk is and they understand you know, what can happen uh, if the risk, if the situation we're talking about, the threat here is realized and your, your app goes down or data gets stolen or whatever, you have been duly notified and you understand. And so now it's not you that is approving it. It is the business because, again, it's the business that should be approving these things and you're enabling them with information to understand the decisions they're making. And that's I think that's a key thing, right? Um, you know, and there's a couple of things I want to highlight here. And for the people that claim this is, you know, bad precedent, we go back to some of the previous conversation. I think what was tried or talked about before was charging executives criminally or, you know, personal fines in response to the breach itself. If you get breached, we're going to charge you with a crime. If you get breached, we're going to fine you personally millions of dollars. And I think that I disagree with, right? Like, yeah. I, I feel like that should never happen. That is not right. The difference here, and this is why I think people have to recognize, the difference here, they're not blaming him for the breach. No, no one blamed him for the breach. Absolutely not. He's not being charged because he's being blamed for the breach. He's being charged for his actions in response to a breach. Correct. That's what he was convicted of. So I think that's important. But the other part of this where I've heard people, you know, talk about maybe not even in a negative sense, but a precedent set by this. And you kind of, you kind of went down this path of, you know, talk to the business, have the business make the decision, get it in writing. That's something that I think may come out of this as an unintended consequence, but maybe it's a good one. Um, you know, is that higher degree of uh, just being careful, right? Yeah. Like, you see, so it's being more careful about the, how they handle this. I, you know, I used to work 
as you know, in a very highly, highly regulated Wall Street firm. And, you know, compliance is a big thing when you're dealing with Wall Street. I mean, and, and we're talking, you know, not just within one country, but a myriad of countries. And so when you have those compliance factors, part of it is the requirements to report and so on and so on. I never, as you know, the BISO in that particular role, ever want to be the one making the decision for my business unit to say, is this something we have to report or not? Correct. No, let your compliance people do that. They're the specialists who are supposed to know all of that anyway. Let them work with the business. Yep. You give them the information. Is that kind of what we're seeing here now? Is that what you're expecting to see more of? Is that that's going to maybe be a... <laughs> I definitely, I definitely think there's people who hold themselves out as bulletproof CISOs or people who can just come in and they want to take more decision-making than they really should. Um, you know, even like, for instance, even while doing my video for this uh, particular, uh, this particular episode of uh, InfoSec in the news, you know, um, with this case, I had to be very careful even how I covered it to be like, you know, I'm not a lawyer, even though I'm reading through case briefs here. I'm just going to summarize for you what all this means, some of the facts as they are laid out, and that's it. And then we're also going to talk about, okay, this was obviously the verdict, and this is what that crime meant, and what do we need to do? And the first thing I hope everyone does is brush off their SERP, make sure make sure they've got duties to inform the appropriate people for it. Right. And so I yeah. think you're going to see a lot of those types of situations where everyone's looking back at their plan um, or even looking at their service providers who are providing some of those services and seeing, okay, what's our plan? What's the actual policy written down? Have we tabletop this? Have we actually tested this to see if someone actually does report this? You know, have you run a purple team exercise to unannounced and all of a sudden it's an emergency? Hey, by the way, it was just a drill, you know, and yeah. plan one of those a year where they don't know it's a drill, but everyone gets together and it's good practice to do that. Um, do something no, like that to try and to try and see, okay, what would we really do in the middle of a crisis like this? And, it, and that's the thing I like about the fact that people are talking about this, right? Like here we are two weeks after this conviction and we're talking about it still like it's brand new and it is brand new in the grand scheme of things. Because here's the deal, you know, it, it affects every one of us as cybersecurity professionals. So to not talk about it or say, well, gee, I'm not a lawyer, so I can't comment. You know, I'm not here to say he's a horrible person. I'm not here to oh, say- Oh, no, 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 no. Like, I'll, yeah. I'll talk about the facts. The facts are he was convicted. The facts are the- court found he did do these things. So I will have to go with those as facts. But it obviously impacts me as a CISO. It impacts you as a high-level security leader. It impacts everybody in this industry. And, you know, and this isn't the only court case going on right now either. No. Right? We've got a member of our own community right now suing one of our most beloved and largest conferences along with the creator of said conference. And that threatens to impact literally every single person that's a part of this community of InfoSec. So let's dig into this other case. <laughs> um, nice segue, hey? I know. Uh, <laughs> seriously, you know, because we, we've got a prominent member and I'm not even gonna mention names. You all know who it is. And if you don't, well, go search for the DEF CON lawsuit and you can draw your own conclusions. But I've been outspoken on this. A lot of people have. And it's because the issue here is you've got 
a conference who enforced their code of conduct. Now, you and I both run multiple conferences. We're both involved in multiple conferences. You're CEO and president of Circle City Con. Um, you know, I'm involved with Blue Team Con and Circle City Con. Um, you know, I, I believe you're involved with a couple others too, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but, you know, codes of conduct have been important, right? This has been something since what, about 2015, 2016 has really been a focus. Um, and we've made really good progress. It's hard to find many conferences anymore that don't have a code of conduct or have a crappy code of conduct of, you know, be excellent to each other was the infamous one for a long time in a lot of places. Yeah. So what do you see, you know, we, we don't have to debate the merits of the case necessarily, but right. what are the implications you're seeing right now in terms of this case and how it could affect conferences, not only ability, but willingness to enforce their codes of conduct. Right. And so this becomes, this becomes, you know, kind of interesting because codes of conduct have been criticized um, by people as being a potential weapon against anybody in the community. Right. So, um, you know, OJ, uh, you know, said something that was, you know, um, sexually inappropriate to me and it's like, okay, well, how, you know, how do we investigate that? How do we find that out? Well, no, you should just go ahead and trust them, right? And then, you know, OJ should be, you know, kicked out of Circle City Con forever or some other conference forever and never be allowed to, because one person just says this happened. And that ultimately is not really how codes of conduct work. That's not how they get enforced. You do have to do an investigation. You do have to go in and fact find and figure out what you can uh, because of that. Um, but there's this big claim that everyone just says, oh, you know, these are going to be weaponized against, you know, these innocent people who've never done anything by supposed victims. Uh, we haven't seen that. We have not really seen that at the community con level. Um, now, what it looks like we are seeing, though, is kind of a back, kind of a back um, backlash of when a victim does speak up. Now there is you know, the, the want of that plaintiff uh, for the uh, defamation to say, you know, now I need to know who that was through discovery, or, you know, now we need to go in and, uh, you know, start, start digging and using those legal tools to try and figure out who this was and go after, you know, it's a potential way for them to go after that. Um, and so we have to worry about that, you know, if what, what's this going to do? And this is going to be an interesting case because if it goes to discovery, um, then it already does damage potentially right. to people um, because now you are piercing that investigative process and getting out there information that doesn't need to be out there. Uh, you're potentially re-victimizing people. Um, and uh, you, you also have the other situation of, what if the plaintiff's right in this situation? Now we have the case that we hoped really wasn't really out there. <laughs> and it turns out, yeah, people are weaponizing <laughs> codes of conduct and that's not a good thing either. And so it's like, there's, there's really bad situations r regardless of whose facts are correct here. Um, you know, but, but we, you, I'd like to think that codes of conduct are doing what we hope they're doing and keeping bad actors at bay and allowing conferences to, enforce and protect and that's the ultimate thing is conferences need to be able to show everyone you are welcome here and you are safe here 
uh, and we will, we will, you know, we will uh, enforce enforce this code of conduct. Um, that's what it's supposed to do. But this makes it harder for people to go. Yeah, I wanted to go to that conference. If this goes for further, yeah, and that's. I mean, there's a lot of things in here that bother me with this, right? And I've, I, like I said, I've been vocal about a lot of it. First of all, is the the want, and I know that the plaintiff in this case has made multiple statements. So plaintiff, to be clear, is the person who in this case was banned from DEFCON and is now suing DEFCON, right? And so his claim, you know, is that, you know, it's defamation, whatever. It's, you know, there's a lot of different things in there to pick apart. But, you know, from the very beginning, he's complained that, you know, well, this isn't, you know, he, he's made lots of claims about courts of law, right? I mean, he gave a conference talk at another conference about cancel culture and, and not being given his time in a court of law. Enforcing a code of conduct is not a court of law situation. It is a private organization who has every right to have their own policies and to decide things based on that policy. And then in an effort to be transparent, they announced the results of enforcement actions under their policy. That's something that a lot of conferences do. It's something that conferences commit to in that very same code of conduct. And so this is an attempt to undo that. The other thing that bothers me here is, you know, we talk about codes of conduct being abused to, you know, to by, um, you know, by the accusers, basically, to go after somebody. But what I've been very vocal about is I feel like we're seeing a case of the legal system being used to re-harass, abuse, whatever, you know, and I, I, let me be clear, I don't have knowledge of what the accusations are, who was involved, what the nature of the accusations are or anything else, right? I'm not part of DEF CON. I don't know this and it's not my business to know. I don't need to know. I don't have any right to know. But the problem here is Assuming that this person did everything they did, and DEFCON says they did a full investigation, they talked to the person, they talked to the victims, all right, they made their decision, so let's go with that. By dragging this into court and asking for discovery, which he's already done, he's already asked for names of the people. So let's say for a minute, and again, I don't know any of the inner workings, but let's say that the the accusation here or any proverbial case, right? Someone at a conference gets accused of intimidating and harassing somebody. Well, what does this legal introduction do? If you're able to get a hold of their name of who it is that accused you, what does that enable you to do as the person who already has victimized that person? Once it gives you the ability to re-victimize. Mm -hmm. And that's my big concern with all of this is now you know, if, if this were, if this person's able to be successful with this in the, the, especially in the mode that he's going about it, the precedent that it sets is awful and yeah. threatens to make conferences completely unsafe for people who have concerns of that nature. So I'm curious, you know, as, as you look at that, how can conferences respond? What can we do different? I mean, <laughs> we we, we kind of have to, you know, watch and wait here. Uh, you know, the courts obviously are going to, the courts are obviously going to, 
give us an idea of how successful someone could get in? Because, you know, obviously the initial harm in this case could be just simple discovery is harm enough, um, you know, and so how easy it is, is it for someone via defamation, which already honestly is a bit of a high bar. It's a bit of a high bar to go to defamation. And so if they can, though, go to that high bar enough for at least discovery, um, you know, that that could be that could be very perilous. And I mean, I don't know what to do with that fact. I mean, other than, you know, going to, you know, your own attorneys and lawyers, which it sounds like DEFCON has competent attorneys who've even told them how to announce uh, their their um, uh, their bans or who. However, if you look at it, it was very vague. It was just, mm -hmm. you know, this person is banned due to, uh, I think it was just multiple reports uh, in, you know, of code of conduct. And we saw, we, th we believe it val uh, merited a, a ban from the conference. That's it. Uh, or confident. We're confident that it merits a ban from the conference. And it's just like, okay, um, that that's, I mean, all you can do is just try to find, you know, good legal uh, advice that helps you understand where your liability is when you go and make such statements. Um, had they kept this completely quiet and silent and just said, you know, hey, person A, you are no longer allowed at our conference, but not said anything out loud. Now, the public wouldn't know that this was the case. And in in fact, in the filing, DEFCON even says, but the public does have a vested interest in knowing because this person is so well known, because our conference is so well known, and they even call it the, the biggest conference or most famous conference in this sector in the world. It, 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 we had a duty to tell people. It yep. was in their best interest in the community to know. Uh, even just the vague understanding of this person is no longer, you know, going to be in attendance. And um, yeah, I mean, all you can do is just try to get the best legal advice you can to make sure you're doing what you need to do and not putting on more liability than you should. And again, this is going to be interesting because we don't really have much as far as conference specific stuff. We don't, there's probably not a lot of case law. There's not, you know, well, this might, this will probably be a part of case law at some point, or at least looking at it to see, oh yeah, this was dismissed, hopefully uh, on these grounds. So that provides a path for others to say, yeah, we've set ourselves up in a similar situation to where we could also, if this happens to us, we could also have it dismissed on similar grounds as well. But again, you, you really have to figure out what district you're in and, and all that, all that good stuff that lawyers uh, know a lot more than we do. Well, and the interesting thing to me too, is that, you know, this, this all came of DEFCON's transparency report, as they right. call it, right? Which, this is not the first transparency report they've released. They've been doing it since DEFCON 25. Okay, so that's five years of this. This is also, he is not the first person they have banned and announced via that. He is also not the first person they have named by Correct. name as having been banned. If you right. go out to their transparency report, there are other people listed there. This is not new. This is not different. So I have a really hard time with this you know, the, the claim that, oh, they're targeting him and this was all set up to go after him, which of course is what he's, you know, what the suit claims is that this was to try to ruin his business. And there's a few other things in there that just don't make a heck of a lot of sense. Yeah. But to me, and again, this isn't legal, this isn't a legal view because I'm not a lawyer, but 
you know, from just a common sense perspective, like, no, this is, this is their business as usual process. They do this every year and this year, and he wasn't even the only one mentioned this year who had Correct. something taken against them. There was a DC, their DEF CON group local to me here who was also banned because of some shenanigans they were involved in. Right. Um, and, you know, so again, you know, you weren't alone in this. This wasn't like you were targeted. This wasn't like DEF CON released some statement saying how awful you were. It was a statement of the facts as, you know, they, as much as they could share and they didn't share much intentionally, as you said, because right. the intent was not to turn this into a, he said, she said, it was just, this is what happened. This is what we did. This was our choice, our decision. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's also an interesting thing where the defamation that this person is also claiming is because they're trying to claim that because DEFCON tends or by, by reputation tends to ban people for outrageous and, um, I forget it, it, it's highly offensive, extremely offensive behavior, um, sub sexually abhorrent behavior, um, that because of that, just merely announcing this, that then the internet also, what she calls the council culture, he mentions that in his complaint, um, so that that's funny that he also gives talks on that because it's in the in the complaint, and he goes through and basically says because of them, all these Twitter folks have made statements about you know me that are not true, and therefore DefCon's the one who's done defamation, and 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 me, I'm scratching my head going. That sounds an awful lot like you're suing the wrong person. <laughs> you're suing the wrong people. You got to go out. Well, I'm not encouraging it, but you know, your, your targets are everyone else on social media. Yeah, don't get him ideas. Come on. I'm sitting right here right now. Yeah. Me, well, me too. Kind of. So, um, but it's, yeah, it's, a lot it, of it's spoken it, up. but you know, it's just, uh, it's just the thing, but we would not have anything in discovery either. So, you yeah. know, that, that's, that's kind of well, where that comes back to is again, what, what do we have you, for discovery? Neither you nor I have any inside knowledge of what's going on here. And no. I can only speak to what I'm seeing in the media and, you know, and, and, you know, my own personal beliefs on the matter, yeah. which, you know, and that's, that's what I do. That's what my Twitter accounts for. It's for me to express my personal beliefs, but in any event, I mean, it's so, you know, from a conference perspective, yeah, it, it's concerning to me because at the end of the day, we want to protect our, our attendees. We want to protect, protect our attendees, our staff, everyone who's involved in that conference the, the whole point of a conference is to be able to come together and to share experiences. And mm -hmm. that only happens if people can come and be comfortable. Exactly. You know, women, women don't have to worry about getting their butt scrabbed or, you know, getting cornered in a room by someone who's hitting on them or, you know, guys don't have to worry about, you know, women grabbing them in their package or other things that can, have happened too, right? I mean, it's this isn't just a one-way street. This happens with all genders. It can go any direction, yeah. and it, it's not just sexual, um, as this this case is pointed out. You know, I mean, it, it sounds like from what what's been filed that the in this case it was not sexual uh, situations that were accused here. It was something else, and 
So, you know, it, it's important to remember there's a lot of things that can occur at a conference that we're trying to stamp out. Right. And undoing these COCs could be a real issue. Yeah. Harassment isn't just merely, it doesn't have to be sexual, you know, even interrupting someone continually during a talk, that's harassing behavior. And you could get kicked out for that. I mean, simply if, if a speaker literally says to a red shirt, you know, uh, we call them red shirts, you, you have blue shirts, it seems. Uh, but, you know, you have, you have your security and safety staff and you say that person was just constantly, I told them constantly to please wait until the end, please wait until the end. And that makes its way up into the reporting structure and it may turn out, yeah, you leave. We told you, you know, I mean, Colin opening. Sterling was suing UBM over that. Yeah. Right. Cause they were presenting at black hat and somebody stood up and they claimed that black hat didn't do enough. Now, I actually don't even know the disposition of that. I haven't heard yeah, anything. I, I, it's been a while since I've even looked at that case to even but, see what was going on, but yeah, they yeah. were, yeah, it was a matter of you did not enforce your code of conduct and, and therefore we had a bad time at your con. So, so, and maybe we, that's legit, you know, I don't know. I, I, there, it's yeah. different because they're not claiming you know, innocence or something else, they're, they're claiming, hey, you said this thing and you didn't do what you right. said you would do, which is a far different situation. Right. Not saying I agree with them suing UBM and Black Hat. That, that's it's going to say we're starting to get into a rabbit hole of cases here. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think this was going to go this long into the legal side. Well, we get to other topics, but I can see that's not going to happen. We're not uniquely qualified to opine on the legal matters here. <laughs> we are uniquely qualified to opine on any matters that affect info security because you that we do. I, and our many listeners out there are all a part of it, and, and, and that's the, and that's the thing. Is I hope I hope everyone realizes we're 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 commenting on the the consequences it really does have on our lives and have on our professions. Not not I, necessarily for our legal. Uh, I think you and realities. I have enough disclaimers out there that you know we're not legal experts. We're not lawyers. You know, I may work with a lot of lawyers. I am not one myself, and I will never claim to <laughs> Yeah, you do work with a lot of lawyers. <laughs> I don't claim superior knowledge of these situations or these legal cases, but what I do claim is that I am somebody that is impacted by them. We all yes. are, and I think that's the key is to recognize that these types of cases do impact each and every one of us in the cybersecurity community because they set precedent. They do things, they cause changes in behavior, both good and bad. And that's why I think it was, it was worth it today. Right. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. We didn't get into other topics. I know we talked about doing a lot more. I will definitely have you back on the show because I know there's a ton more for us to talk about as long as you're willing to put up with me again for another 40, 45 minutes. (laughs) Absolutely. But yeah, unfortunately we got to wrap it up. We're like, we're longer into this one, I think than any episode, but there's been a lot of good conversation. Um, You know, I hope you folks who are listening or watching the stream either live or recorded later, you know, I hope share share your comments. Honestly, I would love to hear what people are thinking. I'd love to hear where you think we're missing something. But you know, I I think these are amazing, incredible conversations that we can all learn from and we can all grow from. Um, maybe there's a whole new way we should be approaching COCs and COC enforcement that would, you know, protect victims better and protect the accused and and make sure that you know these systems aren't abused and so forth. But for now, it's what we've got, and hopefully we, we continue to learn and grow. That's all we can do. So, OJ, thank you so much. Uh, this has been a wonderful conversation. I've had a blast. Like I said, I will definitely get you back on the show sometime because I would like to dig into some 
you know, some other topics specific kind of to our day to day as opposed to these events. But this was a good conversation. I knew you'd be the right person to talk about it with. So thank Absolutely. you for that. Thanks awesome. for having me on. Oh, for sure. Thanks for coming. And to all of you, thanks again for tuning in. We will be back next week. I've got more guests lined up and I'm not going to be traveling next week. So, well, I will be, but that's not going to affect the show. So awesome. Looking forward to it. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in. Keep coming on back. And if you're enjoying the show and, you know, your organization wants to be more involved, you'd like to associate yourself with the messages we put out here, please contact me. Contact ITSP Magazine. We'd love to have you jump on board. But that's all we got for this week. So take care, everybody. We'll see you on down the road on Securing Bridges. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Securing Bridges podcast with Alyssa Miller. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSBmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.